Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the What China Wants podcast with me, Sam Olson, and with Stuart Patterson. And I'm going to start today with a quote not from Xi Jinping for a change, but a quote from the FT from September 2015. George Osborne arrived in Beijing on Sunday to proclaim the advent of a golden decade in Sino-British relations, strengthening his role as a leading advocate of China. The main purpose of Mr. Osborne's mission is to persuade China that no economy in the West is open to Chinese investment as the UK, as witnessed by Mr. Osborne's offer to China to take a big stake in Britain's nuclear power revival. This harks back to, as they said, the golden era of the Cameron time, when Xi Jinping drank beer in an Oxfordshire pub and the leaders of the two countries cooed into each other's ears about how the future together was rosy. But it's gone a bit sour since then, as Stuart and I have been quick to talk about over the last sort of few months. The question is why and how. And today we're joined by an expert in Anglo-Chinese relations, uh, Sam Hogg from the Beijing to Britain newsletter, who hopefully is going to be able to give a bit of an illustration as to what on earth went wrong. Welcome, Sam. Thank you so much, Sam. Thanks, Stuart. Obviously, by saying things have gone wrong, I'm sort of taking away your answer from the first question, which is, what are British-Chinese relations now? And are they as bad as people might think? It's a great question. I think British-Chinese political relations are not particularly strong. They're quite strained, but the economic relationship is still pretty strong. But I think for the sake of this, we'll focus on the former because it's what everyone discusses really in the context of UK-China relations. As you will have seen, we've got two candidates to become prime minister. And we'll come on to that more at length. But the fact that both candidates have been forced effectively to have a China strategy speaks to the fact that China is front of mind for many conservative voters and for conservative MPs too. Just to pick up on the point you yourself made, which is that there's perhaps a dichotomy between political relations and other spheres of interaction with China. Do you think that the cooling of relations is confined to the political sphere? Because clearly, things such as the Chinese foreign anti-sanctions law, the change in the governance structures in Hong Kong, I mean, these must be having a detrimental impact on UK corporate relations with China, one would have thought. And, And clearly, we're seeing a lot in the news about the deterioration in relations between UK academic institutions and China, uh, to name but two other sort of spheres, if you like, of interaction between the two countries. So the politics has gone south. You were alluding to the fact you didn't think the economic relationship was in so much trouble. Perhaps you could elaborate on that. So again, that's a great point. I think trade between the two countries is pretty strong, but the political conversation knocks on to other things. I mean, the example you raised there, academia, has been under intense scrutiny for the last two years. A series of stories about different Chinese firms working with British universities and business as a whole about British businesses being sold to Chinese enterprises. They've both been in a political narrative now for enough time that the government has tabled legislation to deal with both these things. So in the case of the former higher education, you have the higher education bill, which will have an amendment basically seeking to inject some transparency around foreign entities funding university projects. And in the case of the latter, you have, of course, the National Security and Investment Act, which seeks to limit, well, not just Chinese investment, but foreign investment into national assets of importance. So 
although it starts in Westminster, it often spills over into business, into academia, and actually into society at large as well. It's interesting that you're very much putting Westminster first, as it were, that the politics led. Some people would argue that you know, Chinese behavior towards our academic institutions and the asymmetry in our trade relationship, uh, the way British companies, or some British companies have been treated in China, that it was very much actually the deterioration in the economics and, and other dimensions of the relationship to which Westminster has responded. And in fact, Westminster's responded slowly and arguably very behind the curve. I mean, who knows what history might show, but it could be that our politicians have woken up to the China threat just as the China threat starts to diminish if some of what we're hearing out of the Chinese economy comes to fruition. What what would you say to that? I I think it's a fair point, although in my experience, having worked in parliament for a while, there are three or four key moments that changed the era from being the golden era into our current whatever fancy term you want to use to describe UK-China relations as is. I'm quite fond of, although it's meant for the US-China one, Kevin Rudd's decade of living dangerously. And I think one of the key changes was Hong Kong, watching how Hong Kong authorities clamped down, if you want to use that term, on Hong Kong democracy activists and introduced the national security law too. And then it's really hard to overemphasize how important journalism and leaks and data around Xinjiang was for setting the tone in many British politicians' minds around where China is headed or where China under presence she is headed. Those two things are really important. And then sort of on the ground in the UK, Huawei obviously was a conversation that took place over a series of years here. And that was one of the first times you saw a big backbench conservative rebellion build up around a China-related issue post-golden era. So I, I do take your point. I think, again, in my personal experience, the mind of an MP is on a thousand and one things at once. And so they can't really apply the nuance in the sense that you've raised there. They look at these things as quite episodic. And it's only now that we've seen more of these episodes tied together that it feels like there's a a really big kickback against China, if you will. So do you think that politicians in this country, uh, well, and in the West generally, but especially in the UK, have a good understanding of China? And if so, so which are the ones who you think we should be listening to when it comes to their their comments about British-Chinese relations or indeed just what's happening in China itself? A, a genuinely a million dollar question and one of my favorite ones, because I think they know a fair bit about how China presents itself on the global stage, although less than five of them would be able to read or speak Mandarin. And also British politicians, MPs this is, don't hire foreign affairs minded staff. That's not how it works in parliament. So you don't bring in a China specialist, you bring in a team that assembles stuff around your casework. And if you sit on a committee like the Foreign Affairs Committee, you then have access to very useful briefings done confidentially most of the time, but also a chance to interview expert witnesses in that sense. So I think the ones I would listen to in that regard are people like Tom Tugendhat, who is the youngest chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee, recently ran to be Conservative leader and therefore Prime Minister, also co-founded the China Research Group in 2020. I would put Mark Logan in there, who used to work as a foreign diplomat in China. Catherine West, who is Labour's Shadow Minister for Asia, uh, Richard Graham, who chairs the China APPG. And in the Lords, we have a fair number of people. I mean, Lord Patton, obviously the last governor of Hong Kong, brings a wealth of expertise. So I think the majority of them probably aren't that well equipped to discuss the more complex parts of how the PRC internal stuff works. But 
in terms of understanding where China stands on the global stage, they definitely view it through a Western lens, but it's not at the same place where it was three years ago. There are more groups now that have evolved to help brief MPs on these quite difficult issues. It's good to hear, Sam, that some MPs, a handful at least, in your view, have a good understanding of China. But, you know, we've just had this incident with Christine Lee, who, for our listeners' benefit, if they're not aware, has been sort of accused of influencing parliamentarians or trying to purchase influence of parliamentarians using CCP resources. To what extent do you think the United Front and other CCP organisations have been trying to dictate the narrative, as it were, to our parliamentarians? And um, to what level of success do you think they've um, had in, in, in terms of presenting what China wants um, us to believe about them um, to, to our legislators? Before you answer that, it's interesting because uh, Stuart and I have spoken about this before, but recently I was having a meeting with a very, very senior civil servant in the UK. And he poured scorn on the idea that China had indeed tried to infiltrate a British political society. So there's obviously not a joined up view on this. I don't know what, what you're about to say, but it would be good for you to explain a little to our listeners about what both sides are saying. You know, those who say that there are moves by China to infiltrate and those who say that actually this is just over the pudding. What's your thoughts? So I think it's, a, again, a great question in terms of how much influence and interference do we see aimed at MPs. I think there is interference and influence operations taking place, although they're usually not the ones that are discussed as publicly as something like the Christine Lee case. So to give you an example, one side that would put forward the view that interference is taking place, they would point to the endless emails you get, which has MP's first name, MP's last name at gmail.com. And you know they, they send these emails to MPs trying to fish out details around often not that sensitive things, but just as a sort of phishing operation. That's definitely an element that we see quite a lot, and you hear about it reported every now and then too. In terms of the Christine Lee one, it was a very interesting case wherein she's not been charged as far as I'm aware. She still operates as a free citizen in the UK. And it was quite divisive among some of the older China guard, if you will, who saw what she was doing as not that far from lobbying. You have loads of people from many different nationalities knocking about parliament. But in terms of the younger, more active, I would say, uh, MPs and a lot of activists in this space in general, they do think that there is a um, strong interference operation going on. How effective it is? I mean, look at the debate around China. If, if China's goal is to have a incredibly poisonous political relationship, then they are smashing it out of the park. But I suspect it is not the uh, stated aim of the United Front in the UK. So that's uh, you know a, a light summary to potentially what could be quite heavy. So, Sam, I suppose one of the things that we haven't spoken about is your own background. We've spoken a lot about the, the politics of Westminster. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you came to be interested in China and, and your political interests. Sure. So I spent 10 very happy years living between Hong Kong and Scotland. And after my sort of 10 years, that was throughout school and throughout university. And then I was working in London for a strategic advisory company. And I wanted to get involved in working in British politics with a China-facing role. The position didn't exist. And so I thought, I need to find a couple of MPs who are speaking about China and see if I can lend a hand at some level there. My former boss, Nusrat Ghani MP, was a conservative backbench MP. And she sat on this business committee, the Business Select Committee. And they were, under her leadership, having a report, an inquiry into supply chains in Xinjiang. 
So I applied to work for her, was incredibly fortunate to be accepted in and spent a year working on a number of issues from supply chains and forced labor through to declaring genocide by a parliament. She's been sanctioned, hasn't she? That's exactly right. On my fourth or fifth week, my uh, MP was sanctioned. I woke up at about 4.30 in the morning, fever dream as my phone was buzzing from uh, one of my friends who's a journalist saying, have you seen the news? I thought nothing good happens at 4.30 in the morning after the age of 21. <laughs> so nightmare sweat came over and then there we are. So uh, yeah, she was sanctioned. That sort of set the tone. And actually, I should have referenced that earlier on as another moment which unified political thinking in Westminster around China being quite hostile now is when they sanctioned British MPs. Because all of a sudden... MPs, even though they had no China interest before, came together around their fellow colleagues. And this was seen as an attack on democracy as well. Hence why you had all that language from those MPs saying they were as a badge of honor. They wouldn't be cowed in submission. So that was my background. And throughout that time, and just beforehand, I started writing a weekly briefing on UK-China news, just aggregating it anonymously, which I did throughout my time there, just pulling stuff from the public domain into a sort of succinct format, which didn't really exist before. And post-leaving, it's been my full-time job. Very fortunate. And you were just mentioning about the sanctioning being an important part in the downward spiral. But to what extent do you think that personal antipathy towards China from the MPs who have been sort of caught up in this has a dampening effect on Chinese relations? Or do you think actually that we should be thinking about their professional stances rather than any personal side that they might have? So I think... I'll answer that slightly generally. My personal view is that I would like MPs and politicians and sort of spokespeople on both sides to act with a slightly higher level of decorum because I think it's easy to view China as a monolith and to think that President Xi has oversight of every single minuscule bits and pieces going on. And, you know, even today, again, we'll come on to that later on, but the fact that Rishi Sunak, one of the potential candidates to be prime minister, has declared that China will be the biggest threat for the UK. That language lacks complexity to actually talk about what his perceived issue is, which is the CCP rather than China as a country. On the flip side, it does not help MPs come to a more, quote, complex or nuanced view, quote, if they are facing wolf warrior diplomacy on Twitter and a Chinese embassy here that constantly puts out quite bizarre press releases. So being sanctioned is obviously a very personal thing, and I don't suspect most people who are sanctioned look at their sanctioner and think, perfect, this is going to improve my relationship with you. And that's unfortunate what we saw. Also, if I could add one more thing, at the beginning of the sort of uh, end of the golden era, it didn't take a huge amount of experience to have a view on what you wanted the UK's relationship with China to look like. And therefore, you had lots of people coming in and offering a view. Now, the criteria, because the people who've been working in this space have been here for a bit longer, if you're a new MP and you pipe up saying something that's a bit out of place, people might say to you, oh, that's a bit unusual, that's a bit odd. But back then, it was a bit more of a free-for-all. We refer to the golden era primarily because that's what Cameron called it, rather than because it was necessarily a golden era. Looking back on that period, what is there to point to to suggest that it was a golden era? I mean, Chinese FDI into this country was minuscule compared to our main trading partners, certainly compared to what China could have put into this country. Trade with China has grown, obviously, quite fast, but it's been very asymmetric in terms of the growth, i.e. they export to us. Our exports to them are, are pretty subdued. I think we export to them you know, a little bit less than we do to Switzerland, but more than we do to Ireland or the other way around. It's, it's not exactly driving the UK economy. So is the golden era misnamed? That 
is a, a genuinely great question. I think the level of political dialogue between the two countries would make it in the mind of politicians in the UK, a golden era. You had President Xi's state visit here. As Sam mentioned earlier on, they had a pint of beer together, some fish and chips as well. President Xi visited Manchester City's football stadium, took a selfie with Aguero and David Cameron. You had George Osborne, the then chancellor, visited China. He took with him a series of northern business leaders to Xinjiang, where they talked about how they were going to grow connections between China and the northern powerhouse and northern companies. It just felt at the time as if this was it. The UK was going to present itself as China's Western partner. And that was the direction of travel. And as late as 2019, you have then Chancellor Philip Hammond giving a speech about how the UK can work with China's Belt and Road Initiative. So that momentum kept on going for a couple of years. So looking at Parliament now, is it possible to stereotype the different political parties' approach to China? Is there a discernible difference in the driving motivations between the Conservative Party, the Labour Party and the Lib Dems, or, and, and actually the regional parties as well, the Scottish Nationalists, etc., in their approach to China? Or is it much more a sort of cross-party consensus with a few dissenting voices around the edges, which are equally likely to come from right or left? Yeah, so it's it's much more, as you say, a cross-party consensus. To give you one example, genocide in Xinjiang, for example, that is the Labour Party's official view right now that that's taking place. That's the Liberal Democrats' party official view that that's taking place. And conservative backbenchers, by and large, were the ones that helped push that motion through Parliament. So you don't see a huge amount of change on those sort of things. Approaches to stuff like the steel industry may have a slight variation from Labour. But by and large, the view is how the integrated review set out China, you know, a systemic challenge to the UK, systemic competitor, but one that we also need to pursue some sort of economic relationship with. The difficulty with Labour, obviously, is they've not been in power for almost half my life. So it's really hard to tell what their China policy would be beyond what they talk about. And as sort of the leader of the opposition, you can have quite ambitious views that can change quite rapidly when you come into power. But there is not one party that's pushing for closer UK-China relationship or a hark back to the golden era. Within the parliament, though, China does have its friends, right? Its supporters, or if not its friends, those who are prepared to lobby quite hard for the deepening of commercial relationships, irrespective of genocide or what have you. What would be the typical characteristics of people who are prepared to slightly go out on a limb to argue for deeper commercial engagement with China? So I think this this is a minority of parliamentarians and peers, but they would typically present the real polity case, which is that China is the world's second largest economy. We, we cannot simply decouple. The more extreme of them may say that actually talking about a genocide taking place with no follow through is actually not helping anyone on the ground. Some of them might point to the fact that they believe the Hong Kong protesters were misled by British parliamentarians to think that they could effectively march and secure their own democracy. That was never going to happen. But those are not popular views. And those are not views that you would ever see really voiced in the chamber anymore during debates on China. They don't exist in a level that I would be able to provide any real insight onto, I'm afraid. So we've spoken a lot about what Britain thinks of China. But what does China think of Britain? I mean, you must come up with a lot of interesting insights into this in your writings. So this is actually one of the things that I'm 
looking to try and expand in the Beijing to Britain offering is a sort of view from Beijing. As you may or may not know, I actually don't speak Mandarin. So that's why Beijing to Britain right now reflects how the UK discusses China. As a result, I have to get my information around how China discusses the UK through friends who do speak Mandarin and bits that are sent in. But one of the recurring themes here is that people believe the sort of Global Times speaks for the state. And you can see the Global Times' recent coverage of Rishi Sunak, Liz Truss, Tom, Tugendhat, and Penny Morden when they're in the final four or five. Also, Kemi Badenoch too, but not her so much. They view Rishi Sunak as the pragmatic continuation candidate almost. And they have a litany of phrases to describe Liz Truss, who they are not very fond of at all. Come on, give us some, because I think our listeners like to hear the outbursts. Okay. So there's an article that was the other day about (laughs) Liz Truss being a disastrous PM for Britain. It says, As Foreign Secretary, Truss has made herself known through an appeal to extreme nationalism, overboard ideological chauvinism, and unnecessary hawkishness. Former Australian Prime Minister Paul Keating famously described her as demented. (laughs) It's a classic. Here's another great one. Truss has clearly mastered an art of failing upwards in advancing her career through an appeal to overboard populist sentiment and was selected by an equally opportunistic and chaotic Boris Johnson government, not of course for her competence and skill set, but through the sheer fact she said things that people wanted to hear, having made her name as Minister for State by grotesquely exaggerating Britain's post-Brexit trade gains and successfully glossing over the country's grim economic outlook. And then to conclude... It goes without saying that a Liz Truss leadership would constitute nothing less than a colossal disaster for the UK, and there is absolutely nothing beyond her unhinged rhetoric, which would suggest she is even remotely qualified for the role of Prime Minister. So Sam, I wonder if the Chinese, uh, or at least the Global Times, which of course doesn't speak for all Chinese at all, but I, I wonder if the Global Times still has this view of Richie Sinak after today's tweets, because I saw on my LinkedIn chain that he's come out with a pretty stern set of policies towards China. Including shutting all the Confucius Institutes. I mean, that's, that's not going to go down well in Beijing. Uh, shutting those and, and pointing out that the UK channel their money through them in terms of Mandarin education, effectively, therefore, giving the Communist Party of China a monopoly of teaching British people Mandarin. I don't know whether that's true or not. I think it is, but we'll research that one. Looking at the two candidates, is there much to choose between them, do you think, in terms of their approach to to China relations? So the two candidates have had to both come up with a China strategy. Liz Truss, who still is the foreign secretary, has her own approach to China, which she calls the network of liberty strategy. And that involves working with like-minded partners throughout the region, throughout the world to counter economic coercion, Chinese misdemeanors in the sort of region. Until about 24 hours ago, Rishi Sunak had nothing really on record to show what you might term as anti-Chinese Communist Party policies at all. He'd given a speech at Mansion House last year, which is a sort of annual occasion, where he complained about the lack of nuance in the discussion around China and how we're going to need to engage with China as an economic partner in the world. So there's a lot of distance between where Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak historically have sat on China. Now, in the last 24 hours, if you were to be teleported into today, and this was your first look at both candidates, you might think, wow, they both have quite an aggressive anti-CCP stance. You know, the Confucius Institute's ban is something that's been kicking about Parliament for a couple of months, actually, and was first strapped in via an amendment to one of the uh, bills passing through Parliament by an MP called Alicia Kearns. It's quite shocking to see it made 
an actual policy statement within about eight weeks. And again, one of the reasons he's chosen Confucius Institutes is because Liz Trust in 2014 welcomed Confucius Institutes into the UK as part of her role. And so it's a useful prodding point to say, you know, you've flip-flopped on being a Lib Dem, you've flip-flopped on voting for Remain, not Brexit, and now you're flip-flopping on another significant China issue, which is Confucius Institutes. How much that holds water is anyone's guess. It will be really interesting to see how it plays out during tonight's debate and in future hustings. If anyone has had the dial move to thinking that Sunak is a anti-Chinese Communist Party candidate. Well, a key challenge between now and the next five years or so is going to be how the new British Prime Minister deals with China in a constructive way or, or an aggressive way, depending on your, your point of view. And that obviously set the tone for a lot of what happens economically as well. But what do you think is going to be the biggest challenges over the next few years, uh, but from both sides? I think... From the Chinese side, looking to the UK, one of the big challenges will be understanding how parliamentary democracy works properly. So separating the view from parliament and government, understanding how actual political campaigns work in the sense of, I might pledge X, Y, Z, and then come into power and only implement Z. So it's about managing the risks properly there and understanding the context of when they are made. From the UK side, both candidates have put themselves in a fairly difficult position because Liz Truss allegedly told MPs two weeks ago that she would declare publicly that genocide is taking place in Xinjiang if she became prime minister, which in turn triggers a series of legal obligations from the United Kingdom to act to prevent genocide. And Rishi Sunak has obviously made these significant claims around Confucius Institutes and shutting them down, but has offered no real policy behind how we would seek to sort of build our Mandarin proficiency in this country, which is pretty poor as is. So they're both going to have a busy calendar week when they arrive to begin with. And on top of that as well, they'll have to deal with the call-in or passing on of Newport Wafer Fab. So it's going to be a pretty hectic first month. And that, I imagine, will continue for two years until the next election. Sam, thank you very much indeed for joining us. That's a fascinating insight into Anglo-Chinese relations, past, present, and maybe a glimpse into what they might hold in the future. And for all, all our listeners, uh, Beijing to Britain is available. Sam, you write a lot on Twitter, but it, is there a website that they can go to, to to follow your blog? There is www.beijingtobritain.com. T-O, not to the number. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Great, Sam. Thanks. Very nice to talk to you. Thanks for having me. And we'll be back with more What China Wants next week.